Hi, y'all, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm your host, Leslie Conewine, and we're joined by panelists Dave Sedia. Hey, everyone. And Lucas Rice. Hi, everybody. And today we have two special guests, uh, Jeff Cross and Victor Savkin, who are both co-founders of Narwhal. Welcome. Happy to have you. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. That really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. It's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. So uh, we're here to talk today a little bit about NX and mono repos, but I guess first, Jeff and Victor would love to hear a little bit about your background in the industry and Narwhal. Sure. Victor, do you want me to talk? You usually want no, me to talk about this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You'll talk yeah. the rest of the show. Yeah, exactly. Victor and I, we used to work together at Google on the Angular team. We're on the Angular team for three or four years and uh, helped with a lot of the first version of Angular and then the new version of Angular. And then in 2016, after we released Angular 2, as it was called back then, we then left and started Narwhal so we could help initially help teams who are using Angular basically do it well, do it at scale. So large enterprise teams like adopt best practices, level up their tech leads and that kind of thing. And then we'll talk about how that's evolved as we get deeper in because uh, we're, we're no longer an Angular. We, we do still a fair amount of Angular. We've got a lot of top Angular folks, but uh, our consulting has shifted a lot to, to different things. So that's myself. So I used to work on the team uh, as a tech lead of the mobile team focused on performance. Victor did all sorts of other things on the framework. Basically, touched everything but the compiler, which is yep. a big thing. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So did what I, about... Did I adequately introduce you, Victor? Yeah, it's, it's good. I have proof. Yeah, it's a good introduction. <laughs> so what about NX? Tell us a little bit about how that evolved and what it is. Okay, sure. I can, I can take this one. So uh, I want to start, start helping folks with the Angular stuff. And in general, scaling the front-end development, we started implementing... Some of the tooling we used to use at Google, and uh, obviously it's done differently or whatnot, but some of the same ideas we used to use at Google, what we wanted to use with our clients, right? And uh, those ideas, uh, in general, are sort of monorepo related. So companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Uber, a lot of companies, especially in the Bay Area, use the same style of development, but they all develop in the same repository, like all the apps, like so teams can collaborate, etc. Uh, we started helping folks do the same, and after helping a few clients, we refined some of that stuff into a tool, an open source tool called NX. So it started more of a, an Angular-oriented tool for Monorepos, but quickly evolved to become a generic Monorepo tool. Right? And now I think of NX more of like a VS Code of Monorepo tools, where uh, by itself, if you just have a, like a naked VS Code, it doesn't do very much. Right? It does a little bit of TypeScript, but that's basically it. Right? You need to install a bunch of extensions to support the technologies you want to to develop, right, uh, with. And uh, then VS Code becomes a very powerful development experience, sort of akin to an ID, right? 
So Annex is similar. If you uh, have an empty Annex workspace, you won't be able to develop anything. Really. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. Like, you need to install an extension, like a plugin for it, to support technology that you, that you want to use. So if you want to use React or Next, or you know, if you want to build backend stuff, right, you can install the appropriate plugin, and then you can develop with Annex in a monorepo-style way uh, using the technology you want. I have a question. First of all, like three steps uh, behind. Like why, why do you believe the monorepo is the right way to, to go forward? And when is it not? Okay, perfect. That's actually a fantastic question. And I know actually, just as a side note, when I read those docs that you put out and just fill it in, one of the recommendations you have is never to acknowledge a good question, right? Like saying it's a great question, right? But I just cannot help myself. So uh, if I keep saying it, I'm trying not to, right? But it just uh, comes <laughs> out naturally. Essentially, uh, first let me define what a monorepo style of development is, because not many are familiar with this style of development. Monorepo style development is a way to develop uh, applications, projects, such that we develop multiple projects in the same repository, and you use tooling to orchestrate this development. So you can just throw a bunch of projects like Java.NET, React in the same repository and start working on it. It won't be Monorepo style development because you just have disjointed projects in there, right? The tooling that connects it all, that makes the experience coherent, so you can you know, run the same commands to... Uh, to build and serve stuff, right? You can reuse code, you can analyze your repository. That tooling is what makes the experience uh, good and what actually makes the monorepo style development, right? And it's used in open source projects and uh, at companies. If you look at open source projects like Bubble, React, Angular, all, all of them use a, a monorepo style development, just a very narrow view of it, right? And the tool that most folks use to do that is called Learner, or they build something like Learner. They either use Learner or they take something like Yarn workspaces, throw a bunch of bash scripts, and basically they implement a very narrow view of Learner, right? And it works well for those projects, but doesn't work well for applications. We can talk why maybe in a bit. But also companies use uh, this type of development as well. As I mentioned, Google, Facebook, Uber, and some bigger Microsoft, and a bunch of others, right? Do the same stuff. They do it very differently from Learner, right? So if you compare, say, the React or the Bubble repo, right? And you compare how Facebook does things internally, Okay, the, technically both of those are monorepos, but the style of development is, is, is different enough, and the tooling is very, very different, right? Because you deal with different types of problems, right? In case of an open source project, you mainly build similar-looking packages, right? Like libraries that you all build at once and then publish to NPM, and here you go. In case of Facebook, you have different types of packages you build. Some of them are like libraries that right? you push somewhere, some of them are applications, some of them are utilities, some of them are like a test that you run or whatever, right? So the, it's not the same, right? It's not as uniform, right? So the tooling required is, is very different. So that's the style of development. And why did a good idea? There are a bunch of benefits you get from one repo style of development. So the most obvious ones are you get one tool chain, at least on the surface, that allow, allows you to interact with different projects in the same fashion, right? So if I have, let's say, a bunch of applications, I can go to each of them and run tests for each application. I can build them, serve them in a way that seems at least to some degree the same, right? You can still use different technologies to do those things, but at least there is some similarities in how I interact with them. An example, again, here would be using VS Code and installing different extensions for VS Code. If I have a Docker extension in VS Code and I have a, I don't know, Azure extension in VS Code, they do very different things, right? But they still appear in the left, on the left side of the editor, right? There's still the same type of things I can click on, right? So they do different things, but there is enough similarity that I can actually use both things very comfort- comfortably and I can switch between them and I sort of know what's going on. The same analogy. A, a good example of, of why that's uh, beneficial is like at Google, when we were working on Angular, we would bring in GitHub changes from Angular 
uh, into Google's model repo called Google 3 every day. And we would run tests across all the projects that depended on Angular. And if anything failed, we would have to figure out why it failed. And so having it all in a model repo, we, we could easily go see the code and we could even build the code and tweak some things. And, and uh, if we figured out there was an issue with the application code that was consuming it, then we could actually just amend our change list to, to fix that and submit it. And somebody on that team would review it and approve it. So we could then merge Angular plus our change to the application. So yep. the, the having, having common tooling and then having the transparency and visibility uh, enabled a lot, a lot of that kind of stuff that we could, I don't know how many applications I contributed to in the years I was there, just from yep. little patches like that. Yep. Uh, Jeff is exactly right. And that once you have this solid foundation, right? So you can interact with different projects in your repo, you can collaborate a lot more effectively. And collaboration includes not just like fixing applications, but it can be like, I want to refactor a bunch of apps, right? I can actually do it all together at once, right? And I can comfortably, uh, you know, uh, test all of them or serve them or whatever. So doing those large-scale refactorings is a, is a good thing. Another thing you get from a monorepo is that once you do those, you can do those refactorings atomically, meaning that you have two commits before and after, and all your applications work in the before state, all of them work in the after state. You never have the situation where kind of half of them work here, but not really. You need to update some, you know, like you have this, like a week off in between, right? That doesn't happen. It's either before and after, and it works at every, at every commit. So essentially, it, it boils down to, it's much easier to collaborate, right? And share code and do things like that in a monorepo, right? You can build 10 apps, 10 React apps, share some code, uh, like libraries, consume them very easily, and make changes to those libraries and those apps again with ease. So I can make, I can have like a bunch of applications, I have shared components at the bottom. I can change the shared components and I can check right away if I like if that change breaks any of the application dependent those components. So those type of things become a lot easier to do. And that's sort of the main benefit people get from it because every organization wants to improve collaboration, right? They want to make sure the teams don't re-implement stuff. They don't copy stuff over or they like, if they don't copy stuff over, usually teams create like a shared package, which becomes like a, basically a pile of everything that potentially can be shared, right? Which again is not good. So uh, those are the type of things that Monorepo enables. Answering your question, who is it good for and who is it not good for, I think for most organizations, the benefits are actually quite huge, right? And I can talk about the perceived problems with Monorepo and the real problems, right? If, if uh, Maybe in a bit. So the benefits, it's quite huge. The main thing, who is not good for, and uh, the main sort of uh, audience for who is not good for, if your organization is actually very disjointed, right? If you have different orgs and you don't want them to see each other's code, and often for organizational reasons, it's desirable. You actually want to say, okay, my team in, in London doesn't want to see what my team in Toronto is doing. We're two different organizations. We have different budgets. We actually truly distinct. And yes, we sometimes want to share some code, but we actually don't want to be close to each other. We actually want to have the separation such that we re- like have as much autonomy as we can. But I, I think most organizations at this point kind of shift more into, we want some autonomy. But they see how much more productive companies like Google are compared to like a typical bank, right? And okay, we want to be more like that, right? We want to be more like Google or Facebook because they clearly develop software more effectively. And to do that, you need to be able to collaborate. And Monorepo is a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. In my experience with uh, at least talking about Monorepo throughout the years, everybody buys the benefits, right? The benefits are, are, are usually really good. But what I think is that sometimes the company is not large enough because it seems that every time you implement a monorepo in your company, you need to put some dev effort in the infrastructure of the monorepo itself. So correct me if I'm wrong, but is this what do you want 
NX to solve? Like, do you, do you want NX to be like the gluing part of the infrastructure of the monorepo? No, it, it's, a, it's a very good point. Any change in your development practices requires some uh, like upfront investment. Right? The question is, how, how big is that investment? The arguments I often hear are either like on your side, where we are not big enough work to benefit really from it, so why would we care? And the arguments on the other side are, we are so big, it won't scale. Right, so it's like, like no matter where you are, there is always something to complain about, essentially. Right, so let's address those in order. If you're a small organization, and by small, like we are a small organization, we are 20 people, right? We do have a monorepo for all internal stuff. It works, uh, and uh, when you look at what you need to set up to make it work, right, you need to see what tools you use, and also like what is the scale that you're dealing with. If you're a small organization, the scale that you're dealing with is usually not that substantial, right? You have maybe a few million lines of code, maybe like a dozen millions of code, right? And like a handful of developers, maybe two dozen developers. In this case, all the standard tools you use that are unrelated to monorepos, like your, like your GitHub, your source version control, the editors, will work flawlessly with, with all of this. Right? You don't need to worry about any of that. That just works. So in this case, you can just take a tool like an X, right? And you can get it up and running, you know, I can say within hours in that it, it is easy, right? In practice, it takes longer because you actually need to figure out where everything is or whatever, right? So it's, it's a, lot, a, a lot more uh, t- time is spent figuring out the layout of the repo, right? But technology-wise, it's, it's very straightforward. Uh, the only thing that is a bit more nuanced that requires some figuring out is usually CI. Because CI in a monorepo-like setup looks a bit differently. Because in a, in a non-monorepo-like setup, if I change my package, I only test that package. And I only build that package, right? The upside of it is very simple to stop such CI, right? It works. I don't build test, done, right? The downside is that if I change my package, I will never know if I break you who is building an application depends on my package, right? So, so because I don't check you, yeah, my, my CI is suddenly so super fast or whatever, right? And the monorepo-like setup, it's a bit trickier because if I change my package, I actually want to run tests against everyone who can be broken by this change. Uh, so it's a, it's a great property. But the flip side of the property is that you need to make sure your CI is fast. Tooling like Connect helps you with that, right? By, for example, retesting and rebuilding only what's affected by your change. It can analyze your repo, figure out, you know, what the dependency graph is and only do what's necessary. So uh, most of your CI runs for reasonable work won't be very slow. They will be quite fast because you only, if you imagine like a, a typical repo you have, it's a very shallow but very wide graph of dependencies. So if I change one part of it, okay, I need to change this small, check this small part of the graph, but that's basically it. But, you know, uh, once in a while, you have a very substantial change. Maybe you update everything. You change the package that absolutely everyone depends on. So you need to retest and rebuild that. So this means that probably you want to make sure your CI runs on a grid of machines. So if you use whatever CI provider is, most enterprise use something like Jenkins, right? If you use Jenkins, if you're like hardcore, you, can, you have to stop a bunch of agent nodes and distribute your build across the agent nodes. Not super hard to do, but you still have to figure out how to do it. If you use Azure DevOps or, you know, Circle or whatever, right? We need to figure out how to do something like that. And again, it's not that hard to do, but it, you know, it's still a change for most organizations. And that's an investment. That's sort of the biggest investment. So that's on a smaller side. In terms of whether you benefit if you're on a smaller side, I think you do benefit. Like, again, we are a small org. We have a handful of projects we're developing. We benefit a lot from just having one setup where no matter what I change, Ever since it tested consistently, rebuilt it consistently, I can go to one CI process and see what was affected, what was rebuilt. You know, even we benefit from it a lot, and we are small work. I would say anyone who has either one large project or more than one project 
will benefit from it because at some point your two projects will want to share some stuff. Like you're like, oh, I want to share that component. And then the difference between I can share this component in five minutes. This is a monorepo setup. Or I'll have to figure out how to push it to a factory or to NPM and do all this, you know, like a week of investment just like to set up the pipeline correctly, right, for that thing. And the difference is huge, right? And it, at the end of the day, that will decide whether you share that component or not. So the benefits are huge even for like small works. That's for the, the small works. So now if you look at the very large works, they say usually very different things. Like, of course, we benefit from it. And of course, we can invest time because we are bank. We have piles of gold, right, in the basement that you know, we're like Scrooge McDuck's of this world, right? We are wealth organizations. We can support, uh, uh, but it won't scale, right? This is the argument they hear on the other side. Uh, it's great, but it just doesn't scale, which is, I, I find the argument to be interesting in that if you look at Google, clearly it scales for them, right? And they have like 50,000 applications or whatever, like billions of lines of code. Like if it scales for them, what, like, are you really bigger than that? That's the question that, you know, you need to ask. So in principle, it does scale, right? So we know it's in principle scalable. So the question becomes, what part of it will stop scaling when that you have to address, right? Because at Google scale, they have their own version control, they have their own everything. So you need to look at, okay, if I'm like, uh, I don't know, some construction company, right? And I, I don't have the resources of Google to build my own version control. I'm like, what if Git stops working? Things like that. In reality, most of the standard tools you know and love, like, you know, your Gits and stuff, right? They do scale really well, right? Uh, Git scales to uh, a surprising degree. And when it stops scaling, which will happen after you have, you know, a few million files in your repo, like if basically if you're building Windows and the Windows is built in one giant monorepo, it will break at some point because there's too many files, right? So you can switch from Git to GVFS, which is Git with a virtual file system. So like there are tools in place that are publicly available that will allow you to scale way beyond most organizations imagine. Because I think most organizations imagine that they're as big as Google, but they are not. So uh, you need to grow for many, many years before you are nearly at a point where the tools you know and love, like if your VS Code doesn't work or whatever, right, stops working. Right? It will all work. The only thing you have to address relatively early on is distributed CI to make sure you don't just run on one box somewhere, right? Uh, always CI. Once you address that, you have a lot of room for scaling that. Obviously, some of these architectural decisions would be helpful to have been made at the onset of a project, right? What if, like, I'm thinking about startups. Uh, I work at one, right? What happens when you've been working on something for a while and all of a sudden it becomes clear that this sort of monorepo approach would be really advantageous? Is there any way to to make that work with something that a project that, you know, yeah. has already kind of been set up? It's a great question. And uh, I think uh, the clear answer is yes, right? But let me uh, elaborate. So most, as Jeff pointed out, we help companies, at this point, most of what we do is help companies adopt monorepos, right? And use them effectively, et cetera. So many of them have large projects uh, that they were working on prior to, you know, uh, seeing the, the, the light, right? Seeing the truth, right? And wanting to adopt a monorepo, right? So, uh, uh, so they are in the process of, okay, how do I move my, you know, pile of code and into a monorepo and then take advantage of it? Usually, the first step is you can move it into a monorepo and make it work. Because once again, the monorepo tooling by itself is very flexible. You can run whatever you want in there. It doesn't impose many constraints on what you can do. You can basically like drop a pile of code, spend a few days setting up you know, the API of your sort of command that you run, right? So we can run commands in a consistent way, and then it will work. Even more so, you can even delegate to bash. You just run bash scripts at some point, right? But so that part will work. You just, you won't take a lot of advantages of the monorepo stuff, right? You just have your pile of code that was 
over there. Now it's over here. It's still one pile of code, right? It's just you use different tools to invoke the commands. So that's usually the step number one, right? You take a project or a handful of projects, you move them. They don't share any code, you know, they just happen to be in the same place. Once you have that, then as you develop, and it depends on how much uh, effort you want to put in up front and all, as you develop, you start pulling pieces of your applications out into the, in the packages. And those packages don't have to be reusable. People always focus on, oh, I can reuse the library. But actually, there's a lot of benefits of pulling out reuse, like well-defined packages out of your applications just for uh, sort of architectural reasons. So you can, you know, so your application is well-structured. And you, you do it as you go. You don't have to do it all at once, you know. You do it as you, as you, as you find it, it useful, right? A little bit at a time. So in principle, you can switch to a monorepo-like setup. Like, meaning you can use monorepo tools to build your application very quickly. Like, it can take a few days, maybe a couple of weeks if you want to stop robust CI for it. That's basically it. It's more like it may take months and months till you actually see huge benefits. As you start pulling out stuff, you see how easy it is, right? And then when you, you know, Sort of yeah, one of the things that teams, as they're moving into my repo, so yes, yeah, like Victor is saying, like you'll start just move an application into it and then gradually partition it out, start to do things the right way. Uh, when you want to move another application in or you know multiple applications, then one of the things you have to think about is monorepos tend towards a single version policy. Having a single version of third-party dependencies, first first-party sources, whatever is has a lot of good properties, but it's also got some challenges. So you'll want to probably get on the same version of your third-party dependencies before you move the next applications in. So like if you're, a lot of teams, like Bootstrap is a big big thing that if you're using different major versions of Bootstrap, then it uh, is difficult to move to one, but you need to do that before you move in. Or you can move in and actually, like you can have temporarily two versions of, of dependencies and then have some kind of deprecation schedule where you'll say, okay, in six months, we all need to get on the same version of this so we can uh, have a true single version policy in the monorepo. That's one of the policies that makes sharing things a lot easier so that you don't have you don't have your shared component library using incompatible version of Bootstrap that this other application can't consume. Other than that, it's pretty easy to just move applications into the monorepo and then uh, start to partition, partition them and figure out what makes sense for your team to uh, segment the shared pieces and the app-specific pieces. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So this touches a a very uh, interesting uh, subject, which is the... I believe that probably the biggest problem when when we are building software is that is dependencies, not in terms like of the, the libraries that you use, but uh, dependencies in a broader term. Like when I change something in in my code, what do I need to keep track? You know, like which other 
pieces of code right. do I do do, uh, do I need to 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 think about? Do I need to take into account when I change this particular piece of code? So I think that this is probably like the biggest problem that that creates all these complex problems. And it seems that when you're in a monorepo, you have uh, uh, it's uh, makes some of those dependencies uh, more explicit. Yep. Right. Yeah. I think that also with when you have like good tooling, you can even it's very difficult to, to understand when I change something, what impact will it will it have? So does NX have any features in that regard to help? I know it does actually, but I would like yeah. to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 great. Yeah, I mean you're hundred percent right. I think most of architecture at the end of the day boils down to how do I partition my uh, code into uh, co- like cohesive units. And what depends on what, in what fashion, right? That's basically it. Most of architectural decisions can be reduced to that in some fashion, right? That's actually like a, 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 an interesting thing that a lot of folks who talk about monorepos without having direct experience, they say uh, that, hey, my application is already a giant ball of mud. It's like a chaos in there. I don't know what's going on. If I put two of them, isn't it worse, right? It's going to be even bigger ball of mud. Are you crazy? Like, what are you smoking, right? And I think it's actually the opposite is true, right? And uh, you're right in that the tooling that Monorepos provide, right? And Annex in particular actually help you to avoid the big bowl of mud. And the test I usually use with uh, the folks we work with, is not the test, but the, the questions we often ask, like, so can you sketch out the uh, sort of the, the units of your application and how do you think they depend on each other? And people are like, oh, I'll sketch it out, right? They're like, this is core, this is, you know... And then if you look at the code, it's actually not true, right? It's not reflected, which is obviously, it's natural. Like software is hard, right? So whatever you have in your head is not necessarily reflected by the, the actual code that you write. So uh, with tools like Annex, what you can do, and that actually I think is uh, one of the biggest advantages of Annex. And the reason why I would use it, even if I build a single app where there is no code reuse, right? Is that it allows you to partition your like application, your, your giant you know, folder of code into packages with well-defined public API that you cannot go through. You have to depend on the public API, right? And you can impose, and so these packages depend on each other in interesting ways, right? And that, what your application becomes. Instead of one giant node of code where all dependency is done in some God knows what way, everything imports, everything relatively, right? Here you have well-defined packages with, with good names, with assigned types, right? And they depend on each other and you can introspect it. You can ask an X, okay, I have my application. It's comp- like, let's say it's a, it's a reasonably sized application. And it's composed of 50 packages. And like, can you show me those 50 packages? We'll show you this graph of packages, like visually. You can interact with it and stuff to just see what's going on. And then you can say, what if I touch this file? What will be affected? What part of, what packages will be affected by this change? And you, you can attach other metadata to it. For example, you can say, you can assign owners and say, if I touch this file, whom would I have to talk to to merge this change? Or, you know, stuff like that. Having this tool is actually very, very useful, right? Because then you can, for any uh, sizable app, right? You have a lot more clarity about how, how your application is partitioned because you see those names, you see it visually, you can interact with it, right? And in addition, you can also impose constraints on it. So because one of the things that people struggle with is that even if you lay out your architecture for your app perfectly at the beginning, right? Then uh, it will be uh, violated because you know as PRs get merged, people get introduced extra edges into the graph that create dependencies that you probably don't want to have. And folks often rely on code reviews to do that. And I think code reviews actually is a very poor way to do it because usually those dependencies are very, can be introduced in a very subtle way. You import something, doesn't look like a big deal, seems quite reasonable. Suddenly you have like a circular dependency or something that's supposed to be 
abstract depends on something which is concrete right and you're like okay now uh, they change at different rates it's going to be all a mess right so with tools like an x and with tools that folks use at google or facebook right uh, you can introduce constraints saying that those type of edges aren't allowed as rules for example you can say that the code that talks to the server if you if you like to separate your data access stuff from your ui right shouldn't depend on ui the ui code can depend on it because at the end of the day, the components have to ask for data. But the data shouldn't ask for components, right? Essentially, most of the time, it's not a good idea, right? I mean, unless you, like, the questionable if it's a good idea or not, right? I actually like having GraphQL like but everything is in one place. But if you choose to have that constraint, you can set it up. Or you can set another constraint saying that my like, presentational components should not depend on my more container or like higher level application level components. And that's it. You set up this constraint once and then every time you try to secretly depend on it without, you know, or without knowing, you're just like, oh, let me import the thing. Your linter will fail in the editor. VS Code will actually yell at you saying, hey, presentation components can depend on those components. What are you doing? Those type of things are exceptionally useful, right? In another example would be, imagine you have a monorepo, we have a backend and a frontend code. You, you, you're a full stack app. You can actually say that some of the packages you have on the repo in this case are platform independent, can be used on the backend or the frontend. That's fine. Some of them have a front, uh, platform dependent. Your node app shouldn't require, again, there are caveats, but you know, by and large, shouldn't require your frontend code, right? And vice versa, right? So things like that are hard to, uh, to guarantee, right, if you don't have the right tooling in place. Tools like Annex or tools used at Google or Facebook do have that capabilities built in because you have to have them on a monorepo like that. You can get by without them, without the monorepo. It still kind of sucks, right? But because the scope is smaller, you can figure it out. But the more you code you have in the same place, the more it becomes important for you to say, actually, I want to have structure properly defined and enforced by the tools. So I can draw the boundaries well. I can enforce certain invariants, stuff like that. In one of the posts you have, uh, building full-stack React applications in a monorepo, you've got this video in there, and you show this example of having sort of the same type in the front end and the back end, I think, in the video, it's a ticket. And then you're, you're able to, to extract that and kind of share it between the two sides, right? So can you yep. talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's kind of like a concrete example of, yep. of this. And I actually encourage folks to watch the video because like, sometimes seeing is, is believing, right? But yeah. the idea is that uh, in, in that video, I create a, a small API service, right? And a front-end app, and they are in the same repo. The whole distinction of back and front developers living in different you know, places and not talking to each other, I think should go away. It's nice to have things side by side such that I can go and check the API service when I work on my front-end app, etc. So in that example, I have a, a small uh, back-end app and a React app, and uh, the React app talks to the back-end app. So if I want to you know, use something like TypeScript, right, I want to have an interface for that invocation. Right? So if I'm fetching something like a ticket on the front end, I want to have a type ticket on the front end such that type checking works, right? And my tooling provides me the feedback I want. So how is on the front end? But then on the back end, again, I'm dealing with ticket, right? So I have the same interface in the back end. So I have the same interface in two places. The problem with having the same interface in two places is that they're supposed to be identical all the time, but because I have two copies, it's not just it's maintenance burden, right, which it is, but also they will always go out of sync. Half a year in, they will be like slightly different. It's just the reality, right? Whether you want it or not, it will happen. So the only way to avoid it is to say, we're going to have one place where that interface is stored and both the front and the back end are going to consume that interface from that place, right? So in NX, you can create what we call the library. And the library is basically just a, a piece of code with well-defined public API. That's it. It doesn't have to be published anywhere, right? It just lives in the monorepo, it has public API and it has a name. 
So you can extract anything in the library and say, okay, that would be my API interfaces. That's why I'm going to describe the API so that my backend can consume stuff from the library and, you know, and make sure that the backend part works correctly. And my frontend can consume interface from the same library to make sure when we fetch stuff from the backend, you know, everything is well typed. So it's always in sync. So in case of, in, in, that, in that particular video, I actually create interface myself. But if you use tools, let's say, like GraphQL, you can generate some interfaces, right? You write your GraphQL schema file. You can just, uh, during build time, generate your, like a library, right, out of that schema file. And then you have it completely in sync, front and the back end, same place, you know, it's great. It's useful not just for interfaces. It's also useful for things like a lot of constants that the back and the front can share, like error codes. If you want to, you know, dispatch a particular error code and have it in a consistent way, you never want to have the same string duplicated in two places. Again, someone renames it, you know, things get broken in a very subtle way. So uh, an easy way to avoid it is just share that code. And in an X, with, with tools like an X, and again, with tools like uh, what you use at Google or Facebook or whatever, right? They do similar type of things. So an X is more, the way I think of it is sort of a web pack of monorepo tools in that a bundles existed before, but they were super hard to use. Closure compiler from Google requires like a degree in uh, uh, bundlers, right? like a five-year you know, studying plan so you can invoke it correctly, right? Webpack came along, basically did the same stuff and it's easy to use and people love it. I mean, it wasn't you like a background, but at least it did that thing really well. So next is the same. Like we look at a bunch of things that, again, the tools at Google and Facebook do similar type of things really well. They're just super hard to use. And uh, Annex is a simple to use version of those tools. Yeah, I think being able to share stuff between front end and back end or multiple projects is like, it's like one of those really hard problems, like the sharing constants, sharing API stuff, like APIs get out of sync. Form validation yep. is another thing that comes to mind yep. where you have to do it in two places, but you don't really want to write the same code twice. Yep. And, no, exactly. And one thing that I want to throw, like once you have the ability to create those applications and share code, you suddenly create a lot more of the applications that can consume your shared code. I'll give you an example. Say you have a design system and you have a bunch of applications using components from the design system. Actually, you can like, have an app that you know, people can explore the design system components in there, right? You can use Storybook or not, but you can, you can actually build a separate app for the design system, which can be side-by-side with your real app. So even though that app is never deployed anywhere, it's still useful to have it, and you share components between that app and your production app. Or if you're building a mega giant app because you work at a giant company, you can have different lines of business, living like, at different locations, all building the same app. But when you develop that app, you don't want to serve the whole app because you don't want to be, you know, like you just big. You want to serve your, like a slice, the vertical slice of an app. Just put together a separate app, you know, that uses the same type of thing that that giant app uses. And you can develop by looking at a single slice of your application, right? Ignoring everything else. So things like that, even though don't affect your production, can drastically improve your sort of dev experience, right? Because you can create lots of different slices of the app you're actually building. That's interesting. So I uh, uh, would like to uh, to get our last minutes to, to shift the subject a little bit. I don't know if it's uh, appropriate. So it's regarding your consulting work and you've been working in a lot of different companies and you worked on the Angular uh, team. So this podcast is React themed, right? So yeah. even though we talk about a lot of different uh, subjects, I believe that most people listening are, and we work with React on our day-to-day. In your consulting uh, work, in your work with Angular, what do you think are really interesting features that are happening outside React that we are kind of missing out? Like I, I 
I always like to, to look around to see like what's happening, that it's really cool that right. either may happen in the future or it would be cool to, to implement. So do you see anything happening outside this React world that you think is really cool and we're missing out? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, there are obviously a lot of great things happening. So whether like depending on what you like, <laughs> right? if you are really in the functional programming, you can like, like one thing, if you, you know, like a whole menu of options, right? I think React, the React community is very strong, right? In uh, in many different ways, in that it moves forward and uh, quite quickly, right? Uh, sort of it innovates in the in the UI space. That's what I like a lot, right? When the hooks came out, I was like, oh, fantastic! Finally, a good way to manage state in a functional. Comp- you know, like lots of things happen that I, I enjoy seeing. One thing that the Angular community in particular is strong is the tooling. That so it's not even the framework itself; it's just the tooling around surrounding the framework. And I think that was always the emphasis of the Angular team because they essentially it's sort of inspired by the internal work a bit more. So the Angular framework tries to do a bit more, like about a bit more stuff, right? So the tooling is part of it. And in particular, one aspect of the tooling I want to talk about because the CLI stuff it, it's great. There are other technologies that do good CLI, uh, implement good CLIs. One thing that I, I like, and that's what Annex supports as well. And uh, and just to be clear, Annex is completely you know framework independent, technology independent, right? So. If you use an X, there is a separate CLI. So, you know, so, uh, but the same uh, thing exists in an X is ability to upgrade your projects from one version to another one with ease, right? We call it migrations, meaning that if I move, for example, from version of an X, I don't know, like uh, 7.0 to 8.0, I can just say I want to update my repo from 7.0 to 8.0, and the tool will figure out all the packages recursively, right? What needs to be updated and what way so is consistent. We'll update that. And then it will look at your source code. And we'll see what needs to change to the source code such that the source code reflects the new version of the packages. It's going to go and update all the source code in your project. And uh, it works better for some things than for other ones, but surprisingly big number of uh, changes can be done in this way, right? So if you have a, a breaking change, right? Actually, most of breaking changes can be easily automated. So by having the tooling of, I just want to upgrade my project from version X to version X plus one without doing anything really, right? That's one thing that we see work a lot with pretty much all of our clients. And it's used a lot in the Angular community where the majority of projects are on the latest version of Angular for that reason, right? Because it's so easy to, to move up, right? And again, with Annex, you can use it for all sorts of technologies, right? So it works in the same fashion. But I think that's one thing that I didn't see as much in the React community in that the, uh, the tooling is not as... Uh, I mean, I think it's great. It's just kind of it doesn't tackle the same problems as tooling in other, in other ecosystem does, right? Another example I would give you is we have a product called Console, which is a, a, a VS Code extension. Uh, so you install the plugin, and it allows you to introspect, you know, your project, you know, run commands, interact with your project in a way that's uh, a bit more rich. So it's not just a terminal, you know. It helps you feel like figure out what can be, what kind of options you have. You construct the commands, preview certain things, you know, things like that. Again, it uh, it exists right, right now for Annex, right, and exists in the Angular community, but it doesn't exist that much outside because I. Uh, I think a lot of ecosystems sort of stop at the terminal, right? Once like, okay, the terminal works, you can run some things. That's basically it. Sometimes you can launch something in a, in a browser and see a visualization of a certain thing. That's fine. But very few ecosystems go beyond that. And it's, uh, I think it's a shame because I'm a very proficient terminal user, right? I don't use mouse, whatever. I'm very fast with that, right? But I still enjoy some UI once in a while. It is useful once in a while to see something uh, not as an output in the terminal, right? So I think that's one thing that I would like to see more of in general, in the React community in particular. 
Yeah, and uh, the the thing Victor's talking about with with migrations uh, is powered by something called schematics. I think is something that I, I haven't seen. Like different projects in the React community have their own kind of code generation, but a lot of it is kind of like generate it and then back off or eject, and and you're okay. kind of done. Whereas like Angular, most most teams are actually most Angular teams are using Angular CLI and are using the schematics provided by Angular CLI, which is advanced code generation like manipulates existing code. So if you want to add features to code, then it's got smarts for that. It's got the ability to do dry runs to see what changes will happen before they're actually committed to it. So just uh, it's evolved quite a bit over the past couple of years and, and X supports that a lot. And that's, that's what powers a lot of the things with like, now you can generate React apps, React components, Redux state, that kind of things right. uh, using schematics and NX. Yep. That's really cool. Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well-known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well-known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out My JavaScript Story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. Now might be a good time to go to picks. So we pick anything. It doesn't have to be tech-related. Uh, Lucas, you got any good ones for us? Okay, I have two. One of the things that I that I think a lot about is estimation of effort, right? How long will it take? Because I think this is probably one of the things that I see people doing <laughs> really bad at it. I don't think we know how things take. <laughs> we are really it's bad. Hard. At it. <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and I think a lot of the, the 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 problems comes from the amount of dependencies that that our our work has, and we don't know. Like they are unknown when we are when we are trying to 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 think about. So yeah, Monorepo helps a little bit. But I I read earlier today this blog post. It's called "Dear Startup Founder." You have no idea how much that costs. That <laughs> is it. Interesting thoughts on, on, on estimating. I, I don't agree with everything the, the author writes, but it's always good to, to think about it. And another pick today is last uh, episode. I talked about the three, uh, three blue, one brown channel in YouTube that talks about like math-related things with beautiful mm. visualizations, almost like a Zen like things of looking at math, which I love. But today I'm going to talk about one video in particular, which is uh, his video on explaining what cryptocurrencies are. Now this is my standard link that I send to people when they talk about, Lucas, what is actually Bitcoin? Is Mm -hmm. it, oh my God, is it a real cloud with real gold, but it's (laughs) zeros and ones? You know, (laughs) like people don't know what's the blockchain, you know, like let's blockchain our house. And it's like, like, wait, <laughs> look at this. Now I send this video, which is, it's, it's really good. It's an amazing introduction to the subject. Nice, nice. What about you, Dave? So I spoke at React Boston over the weekend, and one of the speakers, um, Cameron Yick, put together a repo with a bunch of presenters, um, the slides from different presentations. 
which is awesome. And he actually gave a talk called Help, I've Fallen Into a Large Code Base and I Can't Get Up. And he talked about <laughs> using visual tools to like explore dependencies in, 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 a, in a new code base and stuff, which is kind of relevant to what we're talking about today. So yeah, those are pretty cool. Check those out. I love the name of that. Uh, Victor, how about you? Okay, cool. So I have uh, two picks. One is a more like a legit pick, like it's an item you can purchase. And another one is a rant pick. It's not a rant pick. It's a, a stance pick. So the legit pick, it's a, I bought it a couple of months ago. It's called an Ember Mug. It's basically a mug that keeps the temperature of your beverage to the exactly, like basically exactly right. right? Oh, I've so heard of that, it. yeah. It's worth it. So people are like, oh, it's $80 for a mug. It's crazy. It is crazy. But your quality of life will become so much better, right? It's the best thing I've bought in a long time because I hate coffee that is not, like tea I can drink when it's warm, it's fine. It's still not great, but I can... But like warm coffee is disgusting, right? It has to be either very cold or it has to be hot. And so before that, I would have to like rush and have the coffee very quickly, right? Because it would, like I would always be like, I, I, when I have a coffee, I would be anxious. Like, oh, it's getting cold. I need to like sip it quicker or whatever, right? And the amount of stress it added to my life was just too much. So with Ember, it's exactly the right temperature. So I can go for a walk, come back, and it's still, you know, the, the way it should be. Surprisingly uh, big impact on my quality of life. So would never <laughs> guess it, but it is. The second pick is uh, I listened to a podcast by DHH, uh, the, the, the Rails guy, right? And where he talked about uh, healing the internet or essentially trying to not participate in uh, you know, surveillance uh, economy. And he talked about not using Google, not using uh, you know, things like that, right? And I subscribed to it. So I, I haven't been using Google for a long time. I searched DuckDuckGo. I haven't been using Google Maps. I use Apple Maps, which is a lot better in that regard, right? Obviously not using Facebook because it's just like a mountain of evil. So uh, try not to use Twitter. I only write Twitter, but never read it, right? Things like that. And uh, I'm not using Chrome, right? Because uh, like support Firefox. So uh, I, I think it's actually not that hard, right? And I, so he made this point in the podcast. People, people always say like, oh, it's so hard. You know, how would I? But in reality, you can get most of the benefits of these tools with ease, like you spend an hour setting it up and you have most of it, right? Firefox is just as good. DuckDuckGo is worse, but it's, it's close enough that it doesn't really matter. Apple Maps is the only thing I hope improves better because often when I'm in a known place, I end up somewhere else, but it's getting better, right? It's, it's fine. In a large city, you know, it, it leads you to the right place anyhow. So try to not use Google, Facebook, Twitter, Uber, you know, go back to uh, caring about your privacy, just a little bit. And I think uh, your life will improve. Your personal life will improve. You'll feel happier. But also the world will improve as a result of this one. Worthy rant. Uh, <laughs> very worthy. Uh, Jeff, any picks? I'll pick some shallow ones since Victor went deep on his. So the Alulu Lemon store just opened underneath me, uh, underneath my office. And I've never been there before. So I, I went in and I, I was out of place, obviously. But, um, uh, but I found these pants called commission pants. And they're so stretchy and comfortable. That I bought them that I think I'm, I'm throwing away all my other pants and well, they're kind of expensive. So maybe I'll, I'll just buy a couple pairs, but, uh, but they're life changing. So <laughs> I recommend go get some commission pants for movie women if you're, or they, they, I'm sure they have it for, for women as well, but uh, highly recommend it. Even if they're not yoga pants either, I don't think, but maybe you could do yoga in them if you want to. Cause I thought women was just yoga. They have everything. They're actually fantastic at making I mean, they're questionable in their stance in, in some areas, but when it comes to actually making clothes, the clothes is pretty good. They're pro-privacy, so they're not on your... Uh, they're not spying on me. Yeah. The pants don't, yeah. you know. <laughs> Yet. 
yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. Life-changing pants. Uh, I've got two picks to close this out. One is a recommendation from Tatiana Mack uh, on Twitter. She uh, talked about this book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. And I decided to check it out. There's a lot of like UK history in it, but you know, we talk a lot about inclusion and diversity in the tech industry. And uh, I thought this was a really interesting sort of historical deep dive into race relations in the UK and one person's perspective on how to, how to talk about issues that are challenging. Um, so I'm enjoying it so far. And then my other pick is everylayout.dev, which is essentially a, a site that was created by Hayden Pickering and Andy Bell. And it teaches you essentially how to better harness the built-in algorithms and power that, uh, or the powers browsers and CSS, right? So it's got a lot of like articles that sort of walk you through how to approach building different layouts without media queries in many cases, without hacks. Um, I haven't actually used it to apply to a project yet, but I love just reading the articles and kind of seeing how they think about how to set up these layouts. So I guess with that, uh, we're closing out this episode. Jeff and Victor, thank you so much for joining us. Actually, uh, could we make one more plug for nx.dev for Please anyone do. Uh, who's interested in, in it? Uh, I should have used that instead of the pants, but uh, <laughs> please check out nx.dev. We pour a lot into trying to make that great. If you have feedback on docs as well, just tweet at me or Victor. You can find us, Jeff Crosser, Victor Sack. Uh, thank you so much for having us, though. This was a lot of fun to chat. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>